Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Uh, hi. Um, so, uh, like Adrian said, I, um, I work with uh, university students most of the time uh, when I'm not doing kind of church stuff. And, um, and so we come, to, we come today to, to this, this huge question, don't we? Like, it's kind of appropriate that this is a, a section kind of talk that we're talking about as big questions because the, qu- the question about suffering maybe even as simply framed as, well, what about suffering, is huge, isn't it? And, and there's a way in which you don't... Nobody ever needs an expert to speak on that subject because the issue of suffering is universal. So like Adrian said, I work with university students, and I think lots of people would say, um, well, why, why would university students be particularly interested in the issue of suffering? Isn't, that, isn't university life in lots of ways, the model of, of kind of the best life. That's what loads of people, people tell people if they're about to go to university. They'll say to them, these are going to be the best years of your life. These are going to be amazing. Um, why does the issue of suffering then come up for so many? It's because suffering, in so many ways, is just a universal human experience, isn't it? It is a universal human experience. We all live in a world that is full of it. We all live in a world where you cannot scroll through BBC News without seeing article after article that is just drenched in human pain and suffering. And we don't just, we don't just witness it, we feel it. How many people here will have been through rough breakups or faced the rejection before you could even get to that breakup happening? How many people here have had to endure living in broken homes or have spent ages going through the pain of having broken bones? How many people here or how many people we know have kept on going through persistent anxiety and depression? How many people here, how many people do you know have had to attend the funerals of friends or family? How many people here have have lived through bullying day after day after day? How many people here have wrestled with learning difficulties that make school ten times harder for you than it is for everybody else? How many people have wept silently through the pain of a migraine simply because if you made any noise, it makes the pain worse? And umpteen more different reasons why suffering and pain is not just something that we see in the world around us or when we're scrolling through a BBC News feed, but, is that, but that we feel, that everybody, to a great or a lesser extent, feels. And so we need to... So if Christianity is going to make sense, it has to make sense in a world that is filled with that kind of pain and suffering, doesn't it? It has to, it has to make sense when the rubber hits the road. It can't just only makes sense when everything is cushy. The thing is that it's easy to get, it's easy to get cliched and little answers to the problem of suffering in the world. It's easy to get twee cliches. Here are a few of them, whether you read them on Instagram stories or in song lyrics. Scars are souvenirs you never lose. Pain lets you know that you're still alive. The pain you feel today will be the strength that you feel tomorrow. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 
The thing is that those kind of cliches, those little suffering tidbits, they work if the suffering is heroic and if in the course of time it's the kind of suffering that you can look back on with kind of fond nostalgia. So um, uh, I fill my free time with, with playing hockey. I've been playing hockey since I was 11 years old. And, um, and a few years ago, I was, I was captain of a hockey team, and it, uh, we were fighting for promotion at the end of the season. We'd got to the penultimate um, game at the end of the season. It was my team. I was the captain. I was desperate for us to win. Um, and, and the game was a bit fraught. It was a bit frenetic. It wasn't going particularly well. And it was right at the end of the first half, and the opposition got a breakaway, and the only two people defending was the, were the goalkeeper and me. And so if, if like the goal of our hockey pitch is here, and, um, and uh, this other team gets a breakaway, and their forward comes kind of has carrying the ball, he's running straight down, our goalkeeper comes rushing out and gets to about here. And, um, and I am rushing back next to this forward who's coming with him. So I'm kind of running in this way as well. And our goalkeeper was rubbish. And so he just kind of falls over, and the bloke who's carrying the ball just walks around him. And so I'm then running back, and I'm standing in front of goal. I'm the only thing between the, this attacker who wants to score and our goal. Now, this is a very rare position for me to be in as a hockey player because I never normally defend. And the reason I don't normally defend is that I'm, I'm a chronic wuss. And the guys who do the defending are the guys who kind of need to be prepared to put their body on the line for the team. But in, on this occasion, what I would normally do is I'd kind of stand out of the way of the goal and kind of waft my stick, hoping that I might somehow do something. But this is no ordinary occasion. We are fighting for promotion. This is the team of which I am the captain. And so, on this one occasion, I go, body on the line, Dave. So I just stand in the middle. I stand right there in the middle of the goal and say, come at me, bro. And he hits the ball, and I'm there ready to stop it, but he lifts it. He, he, he pro- I was expecting him to hit it along the floor, and it comes firing straight at my chest. And I just kind of, in reflex, kind of go, Ugh. And I am the hero of the day. The ball, instead of coming straight into my chest, I managed to get my stick up to here. The ball hits my stick, rolls out to the side of the goal. I am the hero. But in hitting my stick, the ball actually hit my little finger first. And so after the immediate elation of seeing the ball roll off to the side, I see that I've got kind of two little fingers all of a sudden, as they've kind of been severed down the middle. And blood starts flowing, and I immediately kind of see, well, that's going to be a problem, isn't it? Um, when you're full of adrenaline and, kind of, uh, and, and all the emotions going on, you don't really feel the pain right there and then. So my stream of heroicness just keeps going here. I walk off the pitch. I don't need any medical attention. I will be fine, thank you. I will hold this hand over my head. Um, it then whistle goes for halftime two minutes later. I delivered the halftime speech with my hand above my head wrapped in kind of cotton wool and bandages to the rest of the team before I went to hospital. That is how much of a hero I was in that moment. We then lost the game and didn't get promoted, but hey-ho, I still like to think I was a hero. If that kind of suffering, that suffering that I felt for those next few days of having a sore hand, of, of having to go to hospital, that, that tiny little scar, that can be the scar that's a souvenir you'll never lose. That can, that can be the kind of suffering that, that one day it makes you stronger. That's the kind of suffering that cliches make sense of. 
But there is no way that those kind of cliches truly make sense of all the pain and suffering in the world. Even if we Christianize those cliches, they are not enough. When I uh, went to university, I went to Southampton Uni. Um, I'd never really been to Southampton before in my life. I'd been down there once in my life uh, to go for an interview. I knew nobody in Southampton. I was kind of going in kind of blindness. And uh, the first day I went to church, I met um, the kind of person who you really hope you would meet at church, um, along with a bunch of other lovely people. But one person, her name was Faye. Um, and Faye was exactly the kind of person you want to meet in a new city. She was, she was friendly and kind and um, wanted to get to know you. She didn't kind of treat you as if you needed to be part of the in crowd. She was the warm, kind face that you desperately wanted to meet when you go to a new city and you know nobody. Faye was the kind of person who um, didn't care what people thought about her, so that when she, when she got anywhere, she would immediately just take off her shoes and walk around without shoes that day. Whether it was going to the library at uni or going to church on a Sunday, she'd just walk around in her socks because she felt more comfortable in that way. She was the kind of genuine person who cared about people, who spent loads of her time at university just getting to know international students because it broke her heart how many of them never made friends with, uh, with people from other nations. It didn't surprise any of us that when Faye graduated from university, instead of going on to a big kind of successful career stream or something like that, she decided to go and work with rural farmers in Afghanistan to help them recover their livelihood after their land had been utterly broken and devastated. And then in, in January 2010... We got the phone call, the email, the message that nobody ever wants to get. My friend Faye was found dead in her room in Kabul, Afghanistan, at 24 years old. Why? 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 Whatever our answer to the to the issue of suffering in the world is, it has to make sense in a world full of stories like Faye's. What do you say to her parents after something like that? You don't say little cliched tidbits. Cute cliches are not enough in the face of a world full of suffering. See, here's what the problem is for Christianity. Either God wants to do something about all the evil and suffering that there is in the world, but he can't. Or God can do something about all the evil and suffering in the world, but he doesn't want to. And if he, if he wants to do something about all the evil and suffering in the world, and he can't, then he is weak and pathetic and he's not worth worshipping. And if he can do something about all the suffering in the world, and he chooses not to, then he is evil and awful, and he's not worth worshipping. That's why lots of people would say that, that they don't think Christianity stands up to scrutiny in the face of a world full of suffering. That's the problem that we face. Because Faye's story isn't unique, is it? Faye's story is not unique. Plenty of people here 
plenty of people we know have suffered awfully. How can God let that happen? Well, I think, I think and what I want to talk about this morning is that I think in, a, in the face of a world full of suffering, everybody needs three things. Everybody needs three things to make sense of it. The first of those things is that we need a way of thinking that makes sense of it. We need a way of thinking that can help us process what is going on. But here's the surprising thing. Christianity is not the only way of viewing the world that has faced big problems with the question of suffering. You see, we have inside us, don't we, this natural tendency to ask why. This innate way in which we we see what's wrong with the world and we go, this is not right, this does not belong, it should not be like this. Somebody needs to do something. But the fact that we do that, the fact that that is kind of so deeply wrought within us, gives us an indication, kind of, it's kind of a giveaway about what the answer must be, or at least what the answer can't be. In essence, it presents a huge problem to the idea that there is no God at all. Because, because the idea that there's no God at all, the idea of kind of, I guess, contemporary atheism, is that you and I are here, and the only reason we are here is that the product of evolution by natural selection, the only reason that you and I are here is through that chaotic process. I did my degree in environmental sciences. I then uh, stayed on at uni, did a master's where I specialized in evolutionary biology. If you spend any time learning about evolution as a process, you will learn very quickly that it is one that depends on the destruction of the weak and the survival of the fittest. It is a mechanism that depends on suffering. And if that mechanism is the only reason why any of us are here, then that means we are here because of suffering. That means that suffering belongs. That means that suffering is totally normal. But we don't feel that, do we? Nobody responds like that. Nobody just shrugs their shoulders and goes, oh, it's all okay. Everybody looks to the sky and wonders why. So atheism gets presented with this this question that it cannot answer with the issue of suffering. Um, a while ago, Will Smith did a film called iRobot, um, and uh, it's a good film worth kind of a, a Netflix review if you're struggling for anything to watch. And, um, and it, it, right at the start of the film, so this isn't a spoiler, don't worry, uh, one of the characters dies, and, but after he, no, before he dies, he creates this hologram of himself um, that is around after he dies. And the hologram is there to help everybody else solve why he died. And um, so the hologram will answer questions that people ask it. But a lot of the time, people ask it questions, and it kind of just goes very stony-faced and says, I'm sorry, I'm only programmed to answer certain questions. And it's the big frustration that Will Smith's character has with this hologram. is He never answers the questions he wants answered. He just goes, sorry, I'm only programmed to answer certain questions. That's how atheism responds to the question of suffering. It just says... I'm only programmed to answer certain questions. It is the great, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do and die. So at the very least, the idea that there is a God in the universe makes way more sense of our objection to the problem of suffering 
than the idea that there is none. Because Christianity says that this world isn't purely chaotic. It's not just a mess, but it was made by a creative genius, and that this world is broken through sin. Um, I've got a friend called Alice. Um, Alice's parents uh, own a wheelchair company. They kind of make bespoke wheelchairs for kind of complex kind of wheelchair needs. And Alice was once saying to me about kind of wheelchairs and wheelchair users, she said she always finds it particularly kind of troubling working with people and seeing people who need a wheelchair who used to be in the armed forces and who have lost limbs or been kind of paralyzed because of the injuries sustained in war. And she said the reason why she feels that's particularly challenging, she's particularly kind of disturbed by that, is because these people, because they were in the army, were all the kind of people who were incredibly active beforehand. These are the kind of people who who passed military entrance tests, who were soldiers, who were strong, who spent their free time climbing and skiing and running, and, and all of that potential, all of that before ability has been wrenched away from them by the wounds of war. There's something that makes it harder to see when we know that there is inherent capability and that has then been stripped away. I think that is a great picture of what we feel when we see suffering in the world. God made it and it was good 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 and it was was very good. And sin broke it. Sin wounded it. Sin twisted it. Sin caused so much to go wrong. But stop. You might be sitting there thinking, who cares? Okay, maybe believing in a God it gives us a, gives us a, a, a philosophical framework that, that makes more sense of a world full of suffering than others do. But I do not care because I have suffered. I don't care about thinking my way out of this. What I care about is the fact that I have lived through this. I have, I have attended parents' funerals. I do not want a new way of thinking. I have dealt with this illness for years. I do not want just some different way of thinking. I need more than that. And I think that's true. And I think you're justified in thinking that. Because the second thing I think we all need, as well as a, different, as a way of understanding that makes sense of the suffering in the world, the second thing I think we all need is somebody who understands. Somebody who understands. Um, I want to read a, a kind of short story. It's a fictional one. It's not from the Bible, but I think it's, um, the sentiment in here, I think, is really helpful. It's called The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most of them shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heartily, not cringing in shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped one young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattoo number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a young African-American man lowered his collar. What about this? 
he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime other than the color of my skin. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes who simply said, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across this plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering that he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where everything was sweetness and light. There was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God led a pretty sheltered life, really. So each of these groups sent forth their chosen leader. Chosen because he or she had suffered the most. A Jew, a victim of the slave trade, someone from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, someone who had a degenerative illness from birth, someone who went through early onset dementia. In the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. At the last, they were ready to present their case. They thought it was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think he's out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be horribly alone. Then let him die so that there could be no doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly they all knew that God had already served his sentence. These are the words of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the sins of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. 
though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That is my Jesus. The man who was God is a man more familiar with suffering than anybody else could be. Despised, rejected, wounded, crushed, cursed, oppressed, judged. Do you remember the story of, of what it was like for Jesus in the lead up to his death? That night before, when he stayed up all night unable to sleep, even though his disciples kept falling asleep. The way he wept, the way he prayed to God, the way he, he sweat tears, sweat beads of blood. Sweating beads of blood, by the way, is, is something called hematroidosis. It's caused when you go through such severe anxiety that the kind of cacophony of chemicals running through your body causes the blood vessels in your surface of your skin, where your sweat glands are, to rupture. That was the kind of severe anxiety Jesus went through before he died. Why is that? Why is why was Jesus so different from all the other heroes of Christianity facing their death? We've got loads of stories in Christian history from the Bible or, or from, from kind of ancient Christian history or even more recent Christian history of Christians facing their death boldly, confidently, knowing, knowing something different to what Jesus himself knew. Why is that? It's because... Every martyr for Christianity who has boldly faced death has known that they are going somewhere better than they currently are. Jesus knew the opposite was true. That when he was going to die, he was going to be severed off from his eternal father who he had known completely. And he did it for your and my sake. He was crushed. He was wounded. He was oppressed. He was judged so that you and I don't have to be. See, when it comes to the issue of suffering in the world, there is no getting away from the fact that human beings, you and I, have either caused or amplified so much of it. Whether it's the, the clothes that we have brought that have inadvertently fostered a, a worldwide, global, abusive system of economics, particularly in the third world where people have made them for terrible wages, or whether it's the coffee that we've consumed that has helped to foster the slave trade and, and likewise awful working conditions for people, or whether it's the things we've said more directly things we've done to people around us, or a myriad of other ways in which human beings have caused or amplified human suffering. Ask Faye's parents what it was like trying to get her body back from Afghanistan to the UK, and what all that bureaucracy and that red tape was like. We don't get to ask God what about suffering from a position of total innocence. One philosopher was on, once asked this question. What, don't, it was once said, the person said to the philosopher, wouldn't you want to ask God, why is there so much suffering in the world and why aren't you doing anything about it? And the philosopher simply replied by saying, I'm afraid that God would ask me the same question back. 
He was despised and rejected and oppressed and judged. He was wounded for our rebellion. He was crushed because of all that we have done wrong. He was cursed so that we don't have to be. Jesus understood suffering. And he understood suffering because we've made so much of it. But stop. You might still be saying, Dave, who cares? Who cares, if, who cares if you've got this philosophical way of thinking that maybe makes more sense of some of the suffering in the world? Who cares if God understands it? Who cares if, if God is able to understand it? I want a solution. I have been through this for too long. My friends have wrestled with this for too long. My family has been broken by this for too long. I need somebody to get us out of here. Um, one of my favorite authors, when, like, for like, holiday reading authors, uh, when you just want a bit of fun junk, is uh, a guy called Terry Pratchett, who wrote the Discworld novels. Um, and in one of, them, he, uh, one of them called Going Postal, he writes a story of a character called Moist von Lipvig, which is a weird name, let's be honest. And um, uh, the story starts with uh, Moist being in a prison cell. And, um, and he's on death row. He's going to be hung. And, uh, but he's managed to steal from one of the food trays that gets sent through his kind of door. He's stolen a spoon. And over time, he is, uh, he's etched away the mortar around one of the breeze blocks in his cell. And he's kind of had to kind of stuff the, the, stuff the mortar into his bed sheets or eat it in his food. Um, and he's etched away and etched away until the, the spoon has been reduced to a tiny little nub. But eventually, in the middle of the night, when nobody's watching, he's etched away enough that he's able to remove the breeze block. And as he kind of quietly in the night lifts out this breeze block and kind of tries to gently put it down on his bed so that nobody hears, he then, having put it down, he then looks up to the hole that he wants to climb through and he sees there another stone behind it. Immaculately mortared into place, And sitting in front of that stone is a shiny silver spoon. He hears laughter behind him. He turns around and he sees the prison guards are all sitting there, giggling at him. And he just, in in a hopelessness and despair, he just shrugs his shoulders and goes, well, that was a bit mean, wasn't it? And the leader of the prison guards says, no, it wasn't mean. We gave you the greatest of all gifts, hope. The greatest of all gifts, hope. That is the third and final thing that I think we all need in the face of a world full of suffering. We don't just need a way of thinking that makes sense of it. We don't just need somebody who understands. We need hope. Faye's funeral was not what you might expect it to be. Because the Christian response to suffering comes from a God who has not just made sense of the suffering in the world, who has not just suffered in it, but has promised a hope for the future. Faye's funeral wasn't what you might expect it to be because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that we believe in and that Faye believed in. I don't know why Faye died. I don't know in a human sense 
There were two autopsies, neither of which were conclusive. We had to sit through her funeral, hearing her parents say how they didn't know why she died. But I don't know why she died in a deeper sense either. I don't know why I lost my friend at age 24. And if somebody proposes to me a kind of cliched, quipped reason with a night in a nice neat box with a tidy theological bow on the top of it that explains away stories like phase and all the suffering in the world i will not believe them do not believe them you cannot box up all of the world's problems like that but what i do know is that the resurrection of jesus christ gives me a hope that goes even beyond the worst suffering imaginable, even beyond death. See, that problem that people say about suffering and the idea that there's God is how either God doesn't care or he can't do anything about it. But in Jesus, we know that both of those accusations are not true. Does he care? Yes, because Jesus suffered and died. Can he do something about it? Yes, because Jesus rose from the dead. And one day I will see my friend Faye. One day her family will see her again. One day the friends who you've lost who trust in Jesus you will see again in glory. One day all disease and illness and pain and suffering will be wiped away. One day Jesus will wipe away every tear. He has given us the most concrete, assured and guaranteed hope we could ever imagine. And that we need. It's going to be time for questions in a moment. Um, so uh, like previous days, there's uh, a couple of mics down here. And if you want to come and queue up in those. But just before we get to that, I just wanted to say, because often these questions may be detailed and, and fairly cognitive. Um, but it, if you are here not because not because you scroll through BBC News and are troubled by the suffering in the world, if you are here because you, you suffer, if you are here because every day is a struggle, because it is, if you are here because you feel like you are clinging on with your fingertips, hold on, friends. The, the good news of the resurrection is the best news possible, and there will be a day when Jesus wipes away every tear. Thanks so much for listening. But uh, if people want to come and, uh, and queue up for questions now, then now's, now's the time to do it. Um, how I'm going to do this, if while people are kind of moving towards the mics, how I'm going to do this, I, I'm going to take a few in, assuming that there are a few, and, um, and kind of write them down as we go. That just, and, and then I'll start kind of addressing some of them, um, hopefully all of them. Um, but the, the reason I'm kind of doing it that way is because it means that if people... If people may well ask more than one question that touches on the same thing or um, is kind of addressed together. So it just means we can address those together. So I think you were the first of the mic, so do you want to go for it? Yeah. Um, you spoke about the Christian response to suffering, and I was just wondering, within a church, there seem to be a lot of issues that the church tend to shy away from or sweep under the carpet. So when we hear about suffering, we hear a lot about grief and death and physical illness and physical pain but we don't hear so much about issues that we know are a huge problem such as sexual assault which 
you know, affects about two-thirds of the population. And I just wanted to know what the church would have to say about those issues that we never really hear about or know what help people can get in that. Mm. No, great question. Thank you. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll get there. But uh, I think next person was over there again. Yeah, mine's on similar lines. Um, I know freedom from rape and abuse, um, but how do I teach my young people who have been through that, how do I teach them where to get freedom from and how to get it? Um, because obviously every situation is different. So, mm, Great, thank you very much. Yeah. Should we go this side? Um, what would you say about um, like earthquakes and tsunamis? Great, thank you. Yeah, so natural disasters, thanks. Hello. Do you think free will has quite an impact on it? So free will is supposed to be, we chose, um, randomly start, it's supposed to be perfect. Do you think free will is the reason to why suffering is happening? For example, I could choose to do something wrong to another person that afflicts suffering despite it's not them. Sure, thank you. Yeah, so what kind of role does free will have to play in it? That's brilliant, thank you. Yeah, do you want to go for it? Yeah. Why do we often see correlation between the nicest people and the people who give the most of themselves to everyone and to God and the people who suffer the most? Great, yeah, great question. So why, is the, why does there seem to be a correlation? It seems that the, often the most noble people are the ones who suffer the most. Thanks, yeah. Uh, yeah, go for it. Um, what would you say to an atheist whose sole reason to reject Jesus is personal issues and experiences of suffering? Great, thank you. Yeah, yeah, really good question. So, if 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 somebody's an atheist and they're rejecting God on the basis solely of their personal uh, suffering, what would you say to them? Should I go? Um, how would you address the suffering in the Old Testament? So, like, uh, witches being stoned and God striking down uh, a man for touching the covenant and stuff like that. Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, the pro yeah let's have a couple more, keep going. Um, why does suffering exist in the first place? Why does suffering exist in the first place? Great, thank you. Great, hello. Um, so I recently lost my granddad last year and I had the opportunity to say goodbye, but I didn't realize that was the last opportunity I had. And I put schoolwork above seeing my family. And I keep like, beating myself up because I didn't get to say goodbye. So do you have any like, advice on how to deal with that? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing. Hello. Uh, so when, for example, when my... So, my sorry. Guy behind you in the queue, can you just lower the mic for yeah. her? Thanks. Yeah. So, for example, when my friends, they like, or like, you know, when my classmates get asked about like suffering, what should be my response? Mm, great, yeah. So, what's kind of a quick response when people say about suffering? Hello. Um, do you think judgment leads to suffering? Great, yeah. Do I think judgment leads to suffering? That's a great question. Thank you. Hello. Um, so if suffering leads to apostasy or somebody leaving their faith, how would you think about that from a you know, more theological perspective? Okay, right, yeah. So if, if suffering leads to somebody rejecting their faith, kind of how do we process that um, theologically? Great. 
Go for it. I have an English teacher who doesn't want to be a Christian because the Bible says um, some oppressive things about women. Okay, right. So, uh, kind of suffering caused by Christianity as a worldview, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. Great. Hello. Hi. Um, we're just finding it hard to know how to respond to our young people who've lost a friend who's not a Christian yeah. and doesn't have that hope of seeing them one day in heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so... Do you want to go for it? Go ahead. Why would God allow people to suffer so much that they take their own life? Uh, sorry, can you repeat that? Why would God allow people to suffer so much that they take their own life? Yeah, why would, why would God allow so much evil and suffering that somebody might commit suicide? Thank you. Great. One, last one, and then uh, we'll start working through some of them. How about young people who die from diseases or other factors they can't control? What would you say about this? Great, okay, yeah, so diseases and factors out of people's control. Okay, great, thank you so much. Particularly, thank you, I, I know that asking some of those questions is it's not easy to stand up and say some of those things. Um, uh, we'll, we'll kind of, let's start by kind of addressing some of them and some of how... I think particularly how some of them fit together um, and, uh, and then hopefully we'll kind of cover quite a few of them before we run out of time. Um, I guess the, there's several questions there about, uh, about kind of particularly dealing with your, your friends or people in your youth group. Um, so uh, the kind of question about what do you say to somebody who's an atheist who rejects God because of their personal experience of suffering? How do you, um, how do you deal with the, um, the experience uh, kind of experience of people in youth group and around you who who you may have have lost their lives who weren't believers and so you don't have the same kind of hope and way of processing with those kind of things and and how would you how would you just answer the question quickly in a, a classroom or or when you don't have long and you just feel like everybody's kind of building up on you let me address that last one first so that if if you're if you're at school or, or anywhere really and people ask you kind of are bombarding you with this question about suffering and you feel like you're put on the spot um i think one of the one of the really helpful things to do is to say well well how do you make sense of all the suffering that there is in the world because people tend to assume that that christians need to have a response to this but then nobody else does that Christians need to have a way of thinking through the problem of suffering in the world, but, uh, but, but that's not a problem for everyone else. But that's not actually true, is it? The suffering that we see in the world is a problem externally that everybody has to process. We've got a process that we live in a world full of it. But eventually there's also a process that everybody has to, to, to deal with internally. Everybody's going to face suffering in their life. How are you going to get through it? Now, the most, and the most common answer to that um, answer to that question is um is that people will go people will say something along the lines of and excuse my french here the world is effed up and they'll just shrug their shoulders the world the world's effed up but do you look closely at that statement and you can actually see what's unbelieved it underneath it if somebody says the world is messed up that they're assuming that something has been made a mess of. If you see, 
if you, if you, if you go into somebody's house and there's, there's a kind of just a mess of Lego all over the floor and you say that's a mess, you know it's a mess because it could be ordered. It could be right. And you know it's a mess because you know that order is gone. So if you... If, Ask the, ask the question back, and if, if they just go, you know, the world's messed up, the world's effed up, whatever, then they say, well, what do you, what do you mean? Where, how has it gone wrong? What, what, when was it right beforehand? Because I believe, I believe that it was right beforehand, but, but you seem to be saying that it was never right, but then you explain it away by saying everything's gone wrong. Do you see that? That doesn't make sense. The other thing I think you can say to people quickly um, is the, the three things that I said we need in response to the question of the suffering, I think you can actually frame in a, in, a, in a slightly less Christian way. You can say, look, in response to the suffering in the world, we all need a way of thinking about it that makes sense. We all need somebody to identify with us in it, and we all need a hope to get us through it. So whatever way of viewing the world we take, you, we all need those three things to make sense of the suffering in the world. Now, I think Christianity does give you those three things. What does your way of viewing the world give you th- to get through those three things? I think you can begin to qu- say that quickly. Um, then, uh, what particularly do you say to somebody who has is, who is personally experienced suffering and is an atheist because of, because of it, that they, they cannot deal with uh, the idea that there's a God because they have suffered too much because of it? Um, a couple of things that one is that um, they are, and I imagine that the person who asks this is asking because of a particular friend. Um, your, your friend is actually the, they are the unusual one, not the usual one. In that Christianity, and more broadly than Christianity, theism, that there's the idea that there is a God in the universe, is a more common and popular worldview in the parts of the world where there is the most suffering. So in, in uh, the parts of the developing world where uh, rates of kind of hygiene and uh, rates of the economy and rates of minimum pay and all sorts of general kind of measures of human well-being are at its lowest, the belief that there is a God in the universe is at its highest. And so whilst that might be somebody's personal experience, it's not a universal experience. So I guess I'd want to say, well, there's loads of people have suffered bitterly like you and made sense of it and Christianity and God has been what's got them through it not what's made them reject it the second thing I kind of might be inclined to kind of push them towards is going do you does anybody base everything they believe solely on their personal experience now, I don't think you can believe anything that's entirely disassociated from your personal experience. Everybody is an individual who brings their own stuff to the table. But equally, I don't think, I don't think we should think that I'm, I'm the cent- Dave is the center of the universe, and my personal experience should make sense of everything else. No, we believe that truth is something that exists outside of me, and I want to come to that truth knowing I'm going to bring all my personal experience, and, and I'm going to make sense of it. Now, if your friend is, is rejecting God because of their personal experience of suffering, what they're saying is there's the, the atheism is an external truth and that my suffering is made sense of in it. Ask them then if that's actually true. 
see if it does the does the atheism that they believe in does it actually give them what they want in answer to the question of suffering if you start asking them what they want in in response to the question of suffering i don't think it'll be that long before they start saying they want they want an end to it they want a hope they want a resolution of some kind and atheism does not offer that it does not offer that um a couple of questions that are, um, that are quite common within Christianity, um, so I kind of want to deal with them fairly quickly. Um, the first one is do I, um, the relationship between judgment and punishment. Um, so this is a particularly common question during Jesus' time. Um, so there's this one story of when um, Jesus and the disciples, they, uh, they meet this guy who's been born blind. And, um, and the disciples say to Jesus, um, who sinned in order to cause this man's suffering? Was it him or his parents? Because he was born blind. And Jesus' answer to them is, no, you totally missed the point. You've totally missed the point. There is, there is not a kind of linear kind of way of going from these people sinned, as a consequence of it this, therefore that. And that you can then extrapolate backwards. So here is the thing that is that please never say. When somebody is suffering, particularly if a Christian is suffering, please never blame it on their lack of faith or their unconfessed sin. It is not impossible that pain and judgment could have come because of unconfessed sin or of something people have done wrong. That, that could be in quite a kind of mechanical way. If I, if I sinfully drive my car way over the speed limit and whilst I'm full of alcohol, I am sinfully going to crash and face the consequences of that in my harm through crashing the car. That is, that is kind of sin and judgment. There's a correlation there. But just because you see somebody who is injured wouldn't make you go... Oh, I'm, I'm assuming you would drink driving and way over the speed limit. No, you, you have no idea why that might be the case. Don't assume that because somebody is suffering, it's because of a lack of faith or because of unconfessed sin. Jesus says to those disciples, you have no idea what you're talking about if you think that this, is, this blindness is just a consequence of this person's sin. Um, uh, the uh, other common question that people talk about is um, suffering in the Old Testament, particularly suffering that it would seem that God caused in the Old Testament. Um, so asking for certain people groups, to, uh, for the Israelites to go to war with them, or even you could, uh, you, you could have been thinking this in, um, in Topi's talk last night, couldn't you? Some people would be made really uncomfortable by those stories of David where, um, where, where Saul says to David, um, go, and, uh, go and kill 200 Philistines. And bring the evidence back to me. Um, that's a good example because we, we all kind of heard it last night, so it's relatively fresh in our, in our minds. Two things that go on there. The first is that, do you notice, human sin is still not separated from the story. That even though this is a story about God's chosen leader of Israel, David, and God's chosen leader of Israel, Saul, the predecessor to David, these are both people who God has, God has anointed. Even though it's a story about God working in their lives, you still have Saul's sin working through the scenario, don't you? It's because of his jealousy and his envy and his hope that David would die that he is saying, go and kill these 200 Philistines. So 
even out of the context, even within the context of the individual story, you still see that, that human sin is so often at the center of or amplifying the suffering that there is in the world and the suffering that you read about in the scripture. The second thing is that, and this kind of maybe is a bit more broad, is that what is the, if we were to say that story of Saul sending David to kill 200 uh, Philistines, if we were to say um, that that is, um, that is evidence of how God is immoral, what do you mean when you say immoral? And inevitably, what, um, what people, in the, particularly in, in the UK and more broadly in the Western world, mean when they say immoral is they mean morality within a, what's called a Judeo-Christian worldview. That is to say that, that what you and I and the people around us, what we think is good and what is bad, what is just and what is unjust, has been hugely formed by Christian thinking. Because we have lived in a world that has been massively and majoritively influenced by Christianity. And so that's what forms our morality. Um, do you see that? But because we live in a world that's not majoritively Christian anymore, but it's kind of held on to bits of this Christian morality, do you see then kind of step back the weird thing that's going on in the criticism of Old Testament stories or criticisms of God on the base of morality? Is that you have a, a definition of right and wrong that has come from God two people via a a route that they don't really, they're not aware of, but it's still come that way. But then people are using that same morality that's come from God back at the one who gave it to them. So it's like somebody, it's like somebody being a, um, it's like if you, if you owned the, the most beautifully crafted carving knife in the world and um and and you had it and then then one day somebody came around to your house and uh and uh, and they were making lunch and in the making of lunch they asked to use your carving knife and they start using it and then you then you're like oh no you don't you don't use it like that no, 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 don't do it like that, don't do it like that. But then you find out they were the person who designed and built the carving knife. They know far more about the, the way and its purposes and its rightness and its wrongness than you do. That is, that is so often the way that we criticize the Old Testament. We criticize God more, more broadly. Is we use God's morality, we rip it away from the kind of tethers that it originally had and then throw it back at him and do you, do you see the kind of hypocrisy that's going on there that um that story of of david uh, david and saul and the um the 200 philistines then leads on to uh, i think um what one of the helpful kind of questions that somebody asked about why does there seem to be this correlation between some of the best people in the world and uh and how much they suffer because the instinct of reading that story isn't it of david and saul is that um is that those Philistines were innocent. Those were 200 innocent people who died. Um, and of course they weren't innocent, were they? they? They weren't innocent. There is no such thing as an innocent human being. Um, there's nobody who can kind of wash their hands clean of all that's wrong in the world. Now, but why, why, does, it feel that, why does it feel that the people who are, who are kind of the most noble, the very best, seem to suffer the most? Um, 
have, a, have a quick look at Romans 5 if you've got a Bible in front of you. Uh, don't worry, I'll read it out if you don't. So uh, you don't need to. Um, but um, Romans 5 uh, verses... Uh, Verse 3, let me read verse 3 and verse 4. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. See what Paul is saying in his letter to the Romans there. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That, that, word, um, that word character there, I get the kind of Greek word behind it. You could also pr- write, translate as kind of testedness. Suffering has this form of testing people. And testing not in a way of kind of, I'm just trying to catch you out testing, but testing that forms people and, and, and kind of builds them into character, I guess, which is why the other word that it gets translated as. When you think that suffering has that kind of purpose to it, and that produces another question that I'll get to in a second. Um, When you think that suffering has that kind of purpose to it, it begins to make a moral sense of why it seems that some of the best people suffer the most. Because often, helping others hurts. Being kind and generous and self-sacrificial is by its very nature sacrificial, and it hurts but also because suffering produces some of the very best people. Um, a couple of years ago, I, was, uh, I lived in Cardiff, working with students in Cardiff, and, um, and one year, um, a fresher turned up whose name was Haley. Um, Haley just seemed to have something that, that, that other students didn't have. She, she wasn't more articulate. She wasn't the best theologian. She wasn't uh, the most dynamic personality. She didn't have loads more gifts than everyone else, though she was very capable in lots of ways. She didn't shine as like just standing tall than everyone else, but there was something, something deeper so that was kind of, there was more to Haley. And, and people who got to know her found out what it was. And the reason was that um, the that Haley had had a gap year, but she hadn't had a gap year where she went traveling to South America or uh, Southeast Asia or Tanzania. She hadn't had a gap year where she just worked. She'd had a gap year because uh, when she was in sixth form, she had to delay doing her exams because she got cancer and she had to have treatment and had to shave her head and she had to go through that. And when she came to uni one year older than people who hadn't had a gap year, there was something testedness about her. There was a character that had been wrought in her. Now, you could, we could go, while Haley seems to be one of the most noble people, one of the best people, one of the, the, the most good people, why, has, why did she have to suffer? And actually, it kind of goes both ways, actually. The reason that Haley is all that Haley is is because that has been shaped in her and formed in her. Now, okay, that... Plenty of people here might be asking another problem there, okay, of going, Dave, are you saying that, that all the suffering in the world is just God kind of manipulating people to change them? That doesn't sound very moral to me. That doesn't sound very right. Um, and no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, that would be kind of, uh, that, would, that would be turning the truth of Romans 5 into the kind of cliche 
that I was saying is the problem or makes the problem worse right at the start of this talk. Um, but, but there is kind of hints of truth in there. Every, every, every tattoo artist, every teacher, every sports coach knows that suffering and pain produces good things. The tattoo artist tattooing, the, the teacher setting homework, the, the, the sports coach making, making his team run shuttles knows that suffering produces something. And at, the ti- at times, the, the person who's doing the suffering can't see that. Now, if we would acknowledge that the, the gulf between us and God is bigger than the gulf between a tattoo artist and a tattooee, a, is bigger than the gulf between a teacher and a student, is bigger than the gulf between a, uh, a, a sports coach and a player, then maybe it's true that, that at times when we couldn't possibly see the reason for suffering, um, God can see that there is a purpose to it. Um, there are more questions, but I'm conscious that we've come to the end of our time. So what we're going to do now is, if you if you kind of got, got to get to lunch or, or you're just tapping out, you're kind of yeah, your head is full of so many big questions from the course this week. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you with us today and this whole week. Um, so, if uh, I will, I will try and get to. I'll try and get to these some, some some more of these questions in sixty seconds time. But if you do want to go now and you just want to kind of slip out quietly, now's your chance to do it. But please, please do do it quietly for the sake of people who who are going to stick around. Just kind of. Quietly, swiftly, make your way out, and in 60 seconds, we'll d- address some more of these questions. Okay. Um, so I want to uh, spend. Um, I want to get to that first question that somebody asked about. Um, what do we do um, about uh, the kind of issues of suffering that that seem extremely prevalent in the world, but also um, in the church and within Christianity, we don't seem to be very good at talking about. Um, so. Uh, issues, I guess, are issues particularly of sexual abuse um, or issues of kind of some pastoral suffering. So it tends to be Christians can be pretty terrible at talking about things like abortion um, and the kind of some of the things around that. Um, I guess there's two kind of questions underneath that is one is why are we so bad at doing it? Why are we so kind of awkward at talking about those things? And the second question is, well, then, what can we do about it? How can we better it, be better at talking about these things that are, are deeply uncomfortable? Um, the, the first one, why are we so bad at it? I think, basically, I want, I want us to be sympathetic towards an, uh, some other groups of people here. So the first group of people I think we should be sympathetic towards is people who are, belong to a generation that's different from ours. Um, we tend to be extremely conscious of the kinds of suffering that are experienced by our generation. And equally, we're extremely aware of, of the way in which we're comfortable talking. But the generation above and the generation above and the generation above us, um, we feel like they don't understand. So for, I think for, for people under the age of 30, talking about sexual abuse, talking about, um, about recovering from from sexual abuse and talking about even other forms of abuse and recovery, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, we're, we are generally more comfortable with. We, we've, been, we've been taught in schools that you should be able to talk about these things and that you shouldn't suffer in isolation. Um, people in the generations above us who might not be so comfortable talking about that are not, are not uncomfortable talking about it for 
because they just want us to suffer more or because they just dislike us. They're, they're probably, potentially, often, less comfortable talking about it because they've been, essentially, they were taught to be less comfortable talking about it. They were taught to be kind of stiff upper-lipped. They were taught to be, to say, oh, we, we don't talk about that kind of thing here. That was, that was the world in which they brought up in. And so we need to be sympathetic towards that. Okay, so that's first thing, group of people we need sympathetic towards. Um, second group of people we need to be sympathetic towards is um, the people who, on a Sunday, stand up in front of us and open this thing. Um, and I say this as one of the people who, at Life Church in Southampton who does that. Um, because often we can go, well, why, aren't you, why, why don't we preach more about this? Um, essentially, that question, why don't we preach more about dot, 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 um, everybody can ask that about something. There are, there are millions of subjects in the world that, that we can kind of end up going, well, why don't we speak about this more? Why don't we cover this more? Why don't we address this issue more? And, um, and the, the people who open the Bible in front of us on a Sunday and are trying to faithfully preach and teach, um, they're trying to bring to us God's word. And so the, the top thing on their agenda is, and it should be, to preach what the Bible talks about. Now, sometimes the Bible is going to touch on those awkward, personal issues of, of suffering and in those cases, it's right to address those and deal with those and, and not shy away from the issue. But we, we shouldn't, equally, we shouldn't expect that the, everything's going to be built around the thing that we want it to be built around or the thing that we think is the real issue of our time. So two groups of people, I think, in terms of why the church might be bad at talking about some of the issues of suffering, the particularly modern issues of suffering that are more prevalent than we might think, that I think we need to be sympathetic towards others in that. Okay, the, the, the real then question that I've spent a lot of time telling about what not the question is. The real then question is, well, what can we do to be better about it? Um, I, think, I think there's a couple of things. The first is that um, the confession of problems often liberates other people to say that they find something a problem. Um, so, um, a while ago, was, uh, I mentioned in a, a sermon I was giving that I'm dyslexic. I've, I, have, uh, I had real trouble reading when I was growing up, um, and uh, even now I'm a very slow reader. Um, the, I was mentioned this as like a throwaway thing, and then after the sermon that Sunday, I think I had four different, I think the o- only people who kind of fed back about my talk. The only people who wanted to talk to me about what I'd said that Sunday wanted to talk about the fact that I'd mentioned I was dyslexic. They wanted to talk about how, how could they cope as somebody who really struggled to read as a Christian, or they, they, they wanted to, to kind of identify that or address that issue in some way. Um, I didn't think it was a big thing. I'm, you know, I'm not massively insecure about being dyslexic. But what it made me realize is that other people are. And actually, me can bearing that publicly had liberated other people to be able to bear it back part of the reason why we're, we're, we're rubbish at talking about certain things is because nobody's prepared to talk about certain things and so um, and so one of the huge things we can do is when we have when we have been through experiences of pain and suffering know that letting other people know you've been through that 
sharing that grief is not just something that is helpful for you. It's not just an exercise that's good for you to do. Actually, in doing that, it bears, it, it gives other people the chance to bear that publicly. The second thing I think we need to do is we need to never be surprised by the sin and suffering in the world. Um, now, we should never be surprised about it theologically. Um, we've, since Adam and Eve, people have been getting stuff wrong and suffering because of it and suffering indirectly because of it. Um, so it should never surprise us. But you've got to be able to, you've got to tell people that. So the number of, um, the number of kind of young people I've worked with, uh, particularly students, particularly student guys, who've come to me and they've wanted to tell me about something that they've been through, something they've suffered, or something, a sin that they've done. And those things aren't the same. I'm not saying that. Um, often they, they start, they want to tell me something, they struggle. And so I just say to them, look, look whatever you say, it's not going to shock me. There's, there's multiple reasons for that. It's not going to shock me because, in truth, somebody's probably told me something similar to it before some similar way that they have suffered or something they have equally got wrong. The other reason it's not going to shock me is I've read a book. I've read a book that's all about people mucking stuff up and God being gracious and kind in the midst of it. And so I'm not going to be surprised that human beings muck stuff up and suffer through it. Whether you are somebody who's been sinned, who has sinned or you've been sinned against. And I'm not going to be surprised that God remains good and faithful to it. Final thing on this one of kind of subjects we're rubbish at talking about, particularly, I think this is particularly in regard to people who um, have been survivors of sexual abuse or, um, or that, that kind of malaise of sin, uh, sins that can be incredibly damaging to people, is that we, we too often think of sin as only the sins that we do and don't often enough think of the sins that are done to us. So with um, people who have survivors of sexual abuse, have you ever, has it ever occurred to you that it is incredibly strange that they feel guilty about it? Why would somebody feel guilty about being a victim of abuse? Um, the reason is that because sin has this stickiness to it so the sin that we have to kind of wrestle with and struggle with isn't just the sin that we have committed but is also the the sin that has been done to us and if sin has been done to us and that is what we feel guilt and shame for then like in the case of sexual abuse then what we need isn't forgiveness you don't need to be forgiven for being a victim. But sometimes we think of the Christian gospel as, as just being a forgiveness thing. And actually, there's another thing that is for that. And the theological world for what it is is, is, is an expiation. So in uh, Old Testament Israel, and believe me, I'll come back around to the point. Don't worry, I'm not just going on, on a massive tangent. In Old Testament Israel, they had the, the, the Day of Atonement. And it was the, the day in the calendar where they celebrated that the God had rescued the people. And, and in, in that day, animals would be sacrificed. Um, animals would, would die. And there's a celebration that, that God forgave his people. And there's a foreshadowing that one day Jesus would die 
and take the pain and the, the, the sin of his people away. But as well as those animals that were sacrificed, there was also a goat. A goat that wasn't killed, but that the high priest would go and lay a hand on and would say that the sin of this people were upon that goat and the goat would be sent away. It wasn't slaughtered, it was sent away as a symbol of the foreshadowing of what Jesus would do, of taking sin away. That's what expiation is. So theologically, underneath all this, the reason why I don't think we're good enough at addressing some of these issues is because we don't think about expiation enough. We don't think about the fact that, that Jesus has not just forgiven us for, our, for all that's gone wrong in the world, but the, the, the stains, the muck of what we have been through that may well not be your fault in any way whatsoever. Even though you might feel guilt for that, Jesus will take it away. Expiation, that Jesus has taken us in a way, is, I think, one of the huge ways that we can be better at, at helping people to think about the, what it's like to, to survive and go on after you've experienced the pain of being sinned against. Uh, sorry, I appreciate that was a long answer. Um, another common question um, that uh, one was asked about is, what about earthquakes and tsunamis? Essentially, what about natural disasters? Um, because we've been talking quite closely about sin and suffering and how those things relate to one another, but it would seem that in the case of an earthquake or a tsunami, there's no correlation there. It's just... It's just fragrantly unfair. Um, how do we, I think what we need there is we need, of those three things, we need to make sense of the suffering in the world. We need number one to actually work, don't we? We need to be able to go, we have a way of thinking about this that makes sense. And there's two things that I think really do make sense of it. The, the first is that what we believe about what's wrong with the world is, is deeper and more kind of all-invasive than just a kind of breakdown of a few human relationships. When sin came into the world, it caused a rupturing of relationships, a rupturing of the relationships between man and God, humankind and God, a rupturing of the relationships between men and women. So God talks about in Genesis chapter 3 about the brokenness of relationship between Adam and Eve. Um, but it also causes a rupturing of the relationship between humanity and the world. Humanity and the earth. We were put on the earth to, to cultivate it, to steward it, to look after it. And because of sin entering in the world, that vertical relationship between man and God has broken down. That horizontal relationship between humans has broken down. But there's also been this breakdown of the relationship between human beings and what they were put on the earth to do, to steward and to break down the earth. So when we see that, that human beings living on earth is not working well, that's, that's actually a, a very accurate picture of what we see the Bible describe the world should be like, of saying this, is, this thing has gone wrong. It was, there was a, human beings were put on earth to steward it well and rightly, but now there's this fracturedness going on, and so we don't understand earthquakes happening, we can't predict them, and tsunamis happen. And and we don't understand. And I think you can see that that's a consequence of a breaking down of relationships because whilst we don't know when they, those things are happening, um, 
some of the things within nature do. So, uh, like, if you've ever seen a film, that kind of classic Hollywood film, like uh, The Day After Tomorrow or something like that, where there's a huge earthquake or ice age or storm or whatever, there's always some kind of cinematic thing where the camera pans up to the sky and oh, somebody goes, why are the geese flying west? Um, they should be flying north at this time of year. Or some kind of thing where animals are reacting to the disaster that's coming before any of the people know about it. That's not just a Hollywood thing. That, that happens. Um, why does that happen? Because things within nature maybe aren't as ruptured in their relationship to the rest of the world as we are. And maybe that gives us a hint of what the world was like before the fall, that, that, that human beings were in a greater synergy with the world in which they lived in than we are now, because sin hadn't come in and ruined it. Maybe that's why it seems so ruined now. The second thing is that in, in, cases of, um, in cases of tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that, who are the people who always suffer and die the most? The, the worst suffering is almost always on the poorest communities in the world, isn't it? In, the, in, kind of in, in, in wealthy countries, they've built skyscrapers that can adapt to earthquakes or they've got floodplains and flood defenses that can deal with flash flooding or, or things like that. But in the poorest parts of the world, they don't. Doesn't that show us how, once again, human beings in our sinfulness, in our inequality, in our greed that has caused the poverty of so many others, have made the problems of the world worse? Um, so I think actually that Again, that makes sense of the world in which we live, doesn't it? Of, of we, can, we can easily think, well, tsunamis, earthquakes, innocent people die, and it's, it doesn't have anything to do with human beings. It does have something to do with human beings. So when, when you see huge numbers of people dying in, in the poorest parts of the world due to flash flooding in somewhere like Bangladesh... Ask yourself, why are, the, why are the people in Bangladesh so exposed to flash flooding, whereas people in the rest of the world, you and I aren't exposed to flash flooding in the same way? Because of inequality. Because, because of unfairness. And where does unfairness come from? It's come from human beings and their mistreatment of one another. I hope that goes some way of answering the question about um, natural disasters, which comes up often. Um, uh, there was also a question about free will and what role does free will have um, play in um, in suffering? And this is quite a, a kind of this is how um, the common argument. I didn't really bring it up today, but this is how the common argument related to free will and uh, kind of pain and suffering in the world goes, which is that in order for God to have people who loved Him back, um, He had to give those people freedom freedom to choose to love him back because if you don't choose to love somebody then it's not really loving somebody is it and so god had to had to give people free will free freedom to choose god or to not choose god and that freedom of choosing god or not choosing god is not like the freedom between whether you're going to eat a red yellow jelly baby or a yellow jelly jelly baby um that's the freedom between choosing good and choosing evil Choosing 
uh, hope or choosing despair, choosing, choosing flourishing in the world and disharmony in the world. And so that's part of why God would let there be suffering in the first place. So that kind of addresses the, uh, the other question that somebody asked, of kind of where did suffering come from in the first place? This is the idea that, that it's, it's necessary for there to be evil and therefore suffering in the world because evil will always produce suffering. And if evil is the opposite of goodness, God, is, God alone is good. And so evil is choosing the opposite of God. Evil will always produce suffering. And so suffering is a kind of necessary thing. There has to be a world that, that contains pain in it. And that is why the kind of free will argument plays in. Uh, the kind of, I always slightly push the brakes on the free will argument um, because, because of what I was saying earlier about how I, I think if we use it unhelpfully, it can lead us to... Um, it can lead us to to doing that kind of thing that the disciples did of going, seeing this person who was born blind and saying, oh, well, who sinned, him or his parents? If we, if we think about free will as, as kind of the, is what it all is about, all the suffering is about free will, we start going, well, whose will was free that caused this suffering? And it can kind of produce this kind of blame game, essentially, which I, I don't think is particularly helpful to people. Um, one of the uh, really kind of, I guess, challenging pastoral questions that somebody asked is, what do you say to somebody? What do you, how do you kind of counsel somebody when they've lost people who, have, um, who aren't believers, when you've lost a classmate or a schoolmate who's, who's not Christian? Because the kind of hope that I had going to Faye's funeral, um, you, don't, you don't have that in the same way when, you're, um, when somebody's not a Christian. Um, there's a, there's a few things to say there. I, the first is that I, I've been through that as well. So um, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I've attended three funerals of people my own age. I don't know if that's... I, I feel like that's way too young to have done that. Um, you might say you know, 30 sounds quite old to me, but I feel like I was too young to do that. And going, um, going to the funeral of a friend who, who wasn't a believer, who died in the military going to the funeral of a friend who, who wasn't a believer, who committed suicide caused by depression. It sucked. It was awful. Um, the, that's the, the first thing I would say I think we need to be able to, to say to one another, to say to the young people in your youth group or to say to ourselves, is that this is not okay. This, this is rubbish. This is, this is awful. And this is the world we live in. And there's a, the first part of kind of dealing with suffering is not to jump straight to the answers or the cliches, but to, to suffer, to, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to cry with those who cry. Um, the, the second thing I think then is, so at the funeral of one of my friends um, who committed suicide due to depression, um, there was... Um, there was one other Christian who was attending the funeral. And we, were, we were friends with one another. We both knew the person who, who had died. Um, as we cried, as we stood outside afterwards, as it felt like there was a place without hope, something that we were... And we didn't do this as like, 
cliched Christians, because you, I think you might think this, that's what the answer is here. We didn't do this in a kind of, oh, well, you know way. Is We both looked at each other and said, we need to be better at telling these people about, about Jesus. We're both, so the person who died was a, a hockey teammate um, of mine. The Christian friend was also a hockey player. It was a big kind of loads of people from the hockey community who were there. Um, and my friend Emma and I, who are Christians, we both looked around at these people and we said, I'm going to be better at telling these people about Jesus because of this. I think as that's not an easy thing to, to say in the face of losing a friend. That's not a, a glib thing to say. But I think that is there should be some form of awakening in us of going what what if I had the cure what if for all of his what if for all of his loneliness and depression what if I had the answer in Jesus and I'd, I'd never shared it with him that much that, that should motivate me now that then addresses another question of that somebody who really um, honestly, I don't know if they're still in the room or whether they left, uh, really honestly shared about the guilt of um, not having been able to share good last words with somebody. Um, and, you know, what do I do with the, the, the guilt of, of my friend who maybe I should have been a much better job of, of witnessing to? Um, the, the answer to that is always, and I'm again, this might sound like a glib cliche, the answer to that is always held up in the fact that you are not a deity. I am not a deity. There are only three posts in the Trinity, and they are all currently occupied. Um, And so when you feel like I didn't do everything here, when you feel like I could have done more, when you feel like I I didn't do enough, I think in some ways God's response is going that the, the, the post of the Holy Spirit is a full-time post and it is currently occupied. Um, Dave, I, I do not need you to be my Holy Spirit. I don't, don't need you to pretend to be Jesus and to, to think that you're the saviour of the world. Um, the answer to our guilt and our feeling like we haven't done enough is to know that God is, in, God is sovereign. He is in control. He is in charge. He is good and kind. And that he will do everything that he wants to be done. And to trust in that. And to know that he is good in that. Um, so thank, thank you, whoever asked that, whether you're here or not, about the honesty of, of dealing with that guilt. But I think... I think, I think we've got to know that actually at some point my guilt ends because God is in charge. That then also uh, kind of wheels back round to the question of, of dealing with the issue of, of friends, family who've died who aren't believers. And that is that it's incredibly important thing about Christianity is that you and I do not know um, who is a Christian. Um, you and I don't know who's trusted in Jesus. Now, that can be a kind of just, oh, shrug your shoulders. We don't know if anything happened in the last moments of their life kind of nonsense. But beneath that kind of like shrug your shoulders 
oh, we don't know what happened in the last moments thing. There's actually a really important truth of, again, none of us are, none of us are God. God is, and he knows the state of people's hearts, not you or I. Um, and what do we know about him? We know that he is merciful and kind and just. Um, one question that didn't come up, that often does come up about this issue, is um, what about um, children who die? Um, and uh, kind of, what, like, how do, do, will we meet them in eternity? And the answer is yes. Um, we know that because of, of the life of David. So um, the child that David and Bathsheba had together died very young. Um, and later in the Psalms, when David is grieving about it, he says that he will see his child one day. Um, why does Jesus, why does David say that? It's not because he knows his infant had prayed a prayer or come to the front of New Day or something like that. He knows that because he knows what God is like. And if you know what God is like, that he is merciful, kind, and a father, then you know he, if, if you've seen the way that Jesus interacts with children, you know that, 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 that children, babies who die very young, that, that Jesus will welcome them with the kind of welcome that, um, that he greeted with them on earth. Um, that wasn't actually a question that came up, but it often does. Um, we, are, oh, we're, we are at one o'clock, which is the official kind of time that stewards want to start closing the venue. So I'm going to have to wrap it there. Thanks very much for, for hanging around. Um, uh, for the sake of the stewards, um, if, you, if you could not stay in here to chat, that would be really helpful for them because they have to kind of pack things down and they've worked very long shifts all week in crazy temperatures. If you want to chat to me, ask me anything, I'm going to head out that door over there and we'll be over there. So just so that we don't kind of make stewards and technical guys life harder, if you do want to talk to me, I'll be outside that door over there. But thanks very much for coming today. Um, have a great rest of the day.